Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 600. How about that? 600 episodes of the Survival Podcast. It is February the 3rd, 2011, and we're going to have a great show. Another interview. Been trying to do more of those for you lately. Get people on to give you information that I don't have or different perspectives and, and start to build a deeper knowledge pool in the archives of episodes. Uh, today we're going to have a guy named Clayton Jacobs on. Some of you guys will already know who he is. Clayton is the creator of the Soil Cube, and he's been offering a discount of about 20% or 25%, something like that, um, to our members for over a year. So he's in the MSB, and he's back there, and you can find his website called The Soil Cube, and you can look him up. You can get all the great information off his website, and when you want to buy a Soil Cube for starting seeds, you can get it at a 20% discount if you're MSB. So I decided to have him on the air today, and I, he, I thought it would be great to give him episode 600 to be on, because he's been such a long-time supporter of the show. And he's uh, really listens to the show a lot. I think some of that will come through. Uh, when we uh, we have them on here in just a minute. And it's going to be a great show. We're going to talk about starting seeds using the soil cube and a lot of other things with gardening in general. I'm, I'm telling you, um, as much information as you guys got out of the Paul Wheaton uh, interview that I did earlier this week, what do you hear some of the things Clayton's doing uh, with his new piece of land uh, with heating his raised beds during the... Uh, the wintertime. When you get to that, you're going to be really uh, surprised at another really innovative way to extend your season. Before I bring Clayton on, though, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. Uh, housekeeping item one, as always, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready Made Resources. I say this about them all the time, but what more can you ask from a company than for them to give themselves a name that says what they do and then follow through and actually do what they say they do? Well, that's what ready-made resources does. Does They provide all the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready to go. Just go to their website, pick them out, order them, and they get shipped to you with great service, great pricing, and great delivery. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com today for everything you need for your preps, from, from gardening to long-term storage, food, uh, self-defense, 12-volt products, solar, um, awesome solar catalog. you got to download that. I mean, RMR is a great company. Check them out today if you haven't done so already. If you have, maybe it's time to get on back over there and see if there's anything you need to add to your long-term preps. Next up today, um, you know, we always talk about gold and silver as being precious metals. Well, there's a saying in the prepper world, this is the third precious metal. And it ain't platinum, folks. It's lead. Actually, there's four. There's lead and there's copper-jacketed lead. Well, if you want to really uh, up on your preps with your copper-jacketed lead, check out BulkAmmo.com. Uh, they are a great company. They came on. They tested us out for three months as a sponsor. Yesterday, they extended for another six months. They really like uh, you guys. They think you guys are great, and they've had great results uh, with, the, with the community. And I think that's because they do a good job, and they provide something we all need, ammo. And uh, I'll tell you what, they have some of the best pricing and lightning-fast shipping. It's unbelievable how quick uh, you can have a 1,000 rounds show up at your back door. Remember, if you're part of the Member Support Brigade, um, they will provide you a free ammo can with all orders over $200 as well. Real quick on that. I've had a couple people email me and go, the offer's no longer valid. It's valid, but they get cans in. 
They sell them out, and then they get them in again. And then they sell them out, and then they get them in again. Well, that offers subject to availability. So if they happen to be out of stock in cans at the time you order, they can't give you one. Uh, but if they come back in, the offer is valid again. So I just wanted to clear that up because I've had a lot of questions on it. Next up today, make sure you check out our forum. I said this before, I'll say it again. There's a PhD in prepping knowledge waiting for you for free in our forum. A great community and lifelong relationships have been established in our forum. If you want to connect with people in your area, check out the regional boards. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Give you a couple examples of uh, great discounts that you get in that today. But it's a great program. You support the show at 20 cents an episode, and I get you great discounts. And on that note, I kind of wanted to have a couple announcements here before I bring Clayton on today. Some pretty good ones. Um, first of all, we had Seeds of Change doing a discount for the Members Brigade, 10% off all seed orders. And um, they just didn't respond to me after their offer ran out. I don't know what happened. I have no idea. I tried to get in touch with them. No one over there emailed me back and even said, no, we don't want to keep doing it. So uh, they fall out. And I promised you I'd go out and find you another great provider of seeds to take their place. Well, I have. Victory Seed Company is an awesome company that does a lot of work to preserve heirloom variety seeds. Uh, they are now in the MSB. I announced it on the blog yesterday. But if you are MSB, you now get 10% off all seed orders with the Victory Seed Company. And remember, you get 10% or, um, free shipping with all orders to high mowing organic seeds. Uh, I also have to do some final work with Seed Savers Exchange. But it looks like you're going to be able to get $10 off your first year of membership with Seed Savers Exchange. So I'm working on that last one. Victory Seeds is live, ready to go. Um, they're a new supporter, so if you're going to order some seeds, consider doing it right away. Go into your MSB and order from them. That helps them you know, establish that it was worth uh, their effort to set this up for this program for you guys. Um, real quick, last but not least, I wanted to say something to uh, a special listener today who happened to email me and said, Hey, I have a birthday aligning with your episode 600. Would you send me a shout-out? And that person is Sam. And I could not say this fast, especially with my voice the way it is today. Sam from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Happy birthday on episode 600 of the Survival Podcast. All right, folks. And as I said during the introduction segment, we've got, got a great guest with us today. Uh, member Support Brigade members probably know this guy fairly well already because he has a special offer back there for you. But Clayton Jacobs, who is the inventor of the Soil Cube and a uh, pretty damn good gardener, has joined us today on the Survival Podcast. Clayton, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much, Jack. It's great to be here. So uh, let's start out with kind of your your product, because I think it's just an awesome, innovative product, and you sent me one. I've been using it. It works really good. Tell people, what is a soil cube? Uh, what's it do? What, what's its purpose? Well, you know, the, the background on the soil cube tool is that basically it makes little uh, two-inch by two-inch compressed soil cubes that are used for germinating your seeds and, um, you know, propagating into seedlings and then transplanting out to the garden. So it's basically just an alternative to using um, peat pellets or those starter trays or, or um, you know, plastic cups or egg cartons or whatever that people would be normally starting their seedlings for their garden. And, and this provides a way that you can start your seedlings you can get an awful lot of them in a in a very confined space, which means that you can control their environment because they're all easily you know handled. You can keep them indoors in a greenhouse, and and um, and uh, it just it it's a money savings and a time savings and a control savings on on starting your seeds. 
Yeah, let's talk about a couple of the advantages that it offers. One, uh, it, obviously money. I, th I think we could just make that case really easily. If you don't have to buy pots to put your dirt in and the dirt holds itself together, then that expense, or even if you already have pots, storing them and keeping them and dealing with things like, I, I don't know. I mean, one of the things I would think, can this help prevent like the spread of like diseases like funguses from one year to the next? Because there's nothing to harbor it in. There's not any residue left on any pots. That's right. You don't have to clean out all of these pots. I mean, there was a whole industry in Victorian gardens where there was a guy and his job was sterilizing pots all season, you know. And so this way you're, you're, you're working with fresh compost and fresh soil and, and each time you do a, a run of, of your seedlings, you're gonna have, you know, sterile, new, fresh soil and you're not gonna have disease going early blight, those sorts of things that you might get if you're, you know, you reusing pots over and over. And I think there's some advantages even beyond that, right? Like, because one of the things I had built was this little block, basically, and I would use it and put, basically wrap newspaper around it and push two pieces together and made a little cup. But there's, but, so then you, you know, you recycle newspaper, so it's free. Uh, it probably takes about the same amount of time as pressing out a soil block to make one of these things. But then I gotta put dirt in it, so that, that puts me back to more time spent in. But th there's also something called root pruning, right? That's right. That's, I mean, that's just a huge feature of this process. And, and, and to back up just really quick too, I mean, this, I didn't invent this. This, this they've been doing for about 2,000 years. And it originally started as, a, um, you know, the indigenous Aztecs would dredge up the peat off of the, the irrigation canals and they would make soil cubes 2,000 years ago. And this was, this was how they had so much success with a, a huge standing army. I mean, the Aztecs had the largest standing army in that whole area. And because uh, a military marches on its belly, and they were able to produce so much food by doing this technique. So basically, I've just kind of looked to the past, seen what was really successful, and figured out a tool that would, you know, make it for us. So that having said that, the little background, but the um, the cubes themselves, like I was explaining this, I get a, I get this question in email constantly, and people say, oh yeah, I saw your video, or I, I took a look at the website, and. I don't believe you that the, the roots don't come out of the cubes. And I keep answering it with this long paragraph that I, I copy and paste now. But I was thinking about it last night again, and I thought, you know, the, the simplest example is you never see a plant with roots growing straight up out of the ground. You know, the roots themselves have, a, have an intelligence, and they know where soil is and where soil isn't. So they, they recognize that there's less density of soil, and they stop. And then, as an added benefit, when they stop inside the cube, they start that secondary and tertiary root growth on the existing roots, and the whole cube just gets packed with roots. So you get this incredible amount of root growth that would normally, if it were in a, in a container like a pot or something, that would just start circling the pot. Correct. And you get this, you know, very vibrant and healthy plant that, that when you do actually put it out into the garden, the roots also sense that the soil surrounding the cube now, and they just grow right out into the soil. So you know, you save weeks of, of root shock time where the plant's got to catch up again. Agreed completely. And it's the exact results I've gotten using mine, the one you sent me. Thank you for that, by the way. Very, very dense root systems, and the roots don't grow out of the cube. But I understand why people are skeptical, and I don't know the answer to this, and you may not either, but I, I just don't get it. When I used to start my plants in pots like everybody else did, the roots would grow right out of the bottom of the pot. I, I, but then I take and I make your cubes, and the roots don't grow out of the cube. 
I, I really don't understand why that is, but folks, it works. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a little a magical trick that that they figured out two thousand years ago, and uh, and it, it makes a healthier plant. And it just it it uh, takes off faster. I also think it's true permaculture because I mean one of the founding concepts of permaculture is that we're we're to take modern technology but go back and look at indigenous people's techniques from hundreds or thousands of years ago, and that's exactly what you've done. So you use modern materials, you use steel uh, and, and wood and uh, um, plastic to build this product, but you're still basing it on a very, very ancient, old, and very proven, time-proven technique. Absolutely, yeah, that's, that's it. I, I'm just now starting to uh, watch some of the online videos for the permaculture courses, and hopefully... Um, here in the near future, you know, I'll be able to take a, a course and get, get certified. But, um, yeah, it's absolutely a, a great principle. So just look what they've done in the past that worked. And what kind of results have you noticed in a difference if you, you know, I know you started out, like you built this product because you wanted to be a gardener and you didn't get the results you were looking for. So if you take a, a, a pot part, potted uh, seedling and a soil cube seedling and put them in the ground side by side, what kind of difference in results have you seen? Well, I, I can take it. I, I, when I was starting to really seriously garden, I used to live in the city, and so I, I did some gardening there, but it was real light, and, you know, I just wanted some tomatoes in my backyard. And, but when we got out into the rural area, and I really started to be a serious gardener, I had two years of practically nothing. And basically I was preparing beds, and I was doing a double-dig kind of pre- preparation technique and stuff, but I was sowing directly into the ground out in the country, and it's different, and there's so many predators both in the soil and in the air and on the land that are going to attack the seedlings that, I mean, the first year I, I literally didn't get anything out of the ground. The second year, you know, I was holding up a couple of uh, zucchinis that I, they were like an Academy Award, you know. <laughs> I always joke about it. So I was just looking for something where I could actually get some food at all, and I did a lot of research, and I found out about this. And the third year... I prepared a bunch of trays of, of prepared seedlings. So, you know, I borrowed my seeds out of the catalogs, prepared them all, and I, I had almost 100% success. It was like the most dramatic, amazing thing that I think somebody can do to help their garden actually be productive. And it's what commercial gardeners do. I mean, Holland produces, I mean, it must be in the millions, it's hundreds of thousands of soil cubes that they do commercially for producing chrysanthemums and those sorts of things. So it's a proven technology, even modern, you know, uh, agriculture, where um, it it just provides success right off the bat. I've also found, for my use, that it helps me start some plants that I normally would direct sow, that I normally wouldn't start in a pot because they just don't do well. Uh, for example, beans. I grew a lot of uh, Scarlet Emperor. They're kind of the Scarlet uh, Runner's cousin. The pink flowers instead of the red. I grew a ton of those this year. But I had some cutworms that had decided that that was like their favorite thing on the planet. And I could not get them started in the soil. They would come right up, and the next second they would be lopped over and dead. And I had good pest control on everything, and I don't like to use pesticides, so I didn't want to treat this with anything. And I thought about bringing some, you know, surrounding them with uh, DE, and, you know, that might have solved the problem. But then your beneficials, DE is an indiscriminate killer. Uh, Diametaceous Earth is what I'm talking about, folks. And so I said, well, why don't I go ahead and just start these things in pots? And it was right after you sent me the cube. And my, my thing was beans, because of the big aggressive root system, they just do terrible if you pot start them, uh, especially large beans. 
so I had to actually kind of wallow out the little dimple a bit to fit that big seed in there. But I started them, and I just got them up to where they had one set of true leaves. Uh, and then I put them out there, and they were able to get their start without being lopped off when they just had their, you know, their first emergent leaves, which is exactly, I mean, they were just up, and it looked like somebody had come along with a razor knife and just went cut, 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 cut. <laughs> and I think there's probably other plants that don't generally start well in a pot that you could use this technique for because it's just soil. Yeah, you know, um, I mean, t- the the traditional knowledge, they kind of say, oh, don't start beets in, in a pot. You don't want to transplant it. Or don't start um, cucumbers in a pot. You don't want to transplant those. Or even corn, they, you know, typically want to sow that directly into the ground. But, I mean, and I don't recommend people grow corn necessarily. We, you, you've covered that before. I, I don't think, I think that's kind of a waste of nutrient and space, but... Um, but things like cucumbers and beets and those sort of things that they, they do great. You can transplant those all day long and they don't, I don't know, I'm not sure what the process is about transplanting that they don't do well, but I know that they don't normally, but with the soil cube, they, they don't have a problem. It, it's so. really anything with a really big aggressive root system because those roots get so aggressive and they do grow out of the bottom of the pots and they get a lot of that circling you know, they call it circling and girdling root syndrome type of thing going on. And the only way that you can deal with that when you bring them out of the pot is to kind of break that soil up. And now you've disturbed the roots, and now they become weak. And then things like beans, since any legume is either the most hardy or the most weak thing on the planet, right? Yeah. And and what I mean by that is once it's established, man, it's, it's there. But in its emergent stage, it's so easy to disrupt. That's why a lot of times people will get compost, and it's compost that's been made with maybe uh, some uh, stuff that's, that's been hit with uh, Roundup, with Roundup Ready stuff or some drain-off, and everything grows in it, but your your beans just kind of come up and crap out. It's because legumes are so much more affected by things like herbicides. So with that, that weakness, when you tamper with the root system at all, and beets, it's about deformation. You know, you put a beet in the ground, you transplant it, it just deforms the root. It doesn't grow into a nice bulb. Same with carrots and all. But with the big roots, like, uh, again, like zucchinis and some squashes. Or daikon or, yep. or parsnips or, yep. or turnips yeah. or anything. Yeah, anything with a deep tap root, it, it just wouldn't work. And I guess, you know, thinking about that way, you could probably make a, a, a deeper soil cube and even things with long tap roots, it would just, you know, kind of cruise on down because – like you mentioned, it's corn, and I don't hate corn, right? I don't like most modern corns. I think that, that we don't have the space in most home garden situations to do it effectively. It's very nutrient uh, dependent, and it takes a long time to grow. It takes a lot of space. But things like the Indian corns, the reds, the blues, the dead corns, they actually are a lot less nutrient dependent. But for a lot of people, if you could, you know, you want to grow, let's say, a hundred of them, a hundred pots is a lot of investment. A hundred chunks of cube is a hundred little bumps of soil, and you could get them started three, four weeks early by protecting it in your greenhouse, and you could grow stuff like that. So I think that is an excellent idea. I never really thought of it, but uh, I think that they probably do wonderful in a soil cube. Yeah, yeah, they do. And you know that's that's the neat thing is that, that you can get so many soil cubes on a tray. I, my my trays that I have, I've, I've have I made a rack. I can carry seven trays in each rack, and each tray is going to hold between 60 and 80 soil cubes, depending on how tightly I pack them in there. So you're talking, you know, hundreds of seedlings that are constantly being rotated out in succession out of the, the racks. 
and I can keep them in my garage with some lights on them and wheel them out and harden them off as as I need to. And and uh, it's it's just a massive production. I think about the just to editorialize a bit about the the corn is like for example where we live. I've got a Monsanto test facility about 30 miles from here, 40 miles from here, and who knows what they're growing there. But, you know, there's just some of these crops now that you kind of have to just write off and say, you know what, I'm not going to grow them because there's no real way to be safe anymore. And that kind of includes corn, for sure, Um, soybeans. I mean, I I love to have edamame, but who knows, they're probably being destroyed. And I've had some seed-saving disasters with the soybeans. Um, canola, you know, I mean, I don't, the home gardeners don't typically grow canola, but cotton, soybeans, corn, canola, even sugar beets these days, you, they're, they're releasing those already. You kind of have to write those crops off because that's out there. The genie's out of the bottle, and you're not going to be able to protect your seeds, you know, in our open pollinated world. Well, and you're, you're dead on. Corn is the worst one. Um, because I've str- strived to make sure when I do grow some corn that I get absolutely no GMO genes in it. And the companies that really are doing heavy work to make sure they're providing this, like high mowing, organic, uh, like seeds of change, like seed savers, that are having their corn tested before they say it's GMO free, are saying that even in the most remote growing regions, they're having um, this this these genes show up in corn because it's wind pollinated. And what's the limit to wind? It's the direction is all. I mean, it's blowing you can go forever. China all yeah. the way over. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you're right on, especially on the corn. Um, sugar beets, I, I worry a little bit less about beets because they have to go to their second year to pollinate. For um, now. And as long as everybody, you know, steps up and, and stops them from tainting that serious uh, crop, you know. but It takes ten, 10 in a bar ditch, though, right? 10 growing in a bar ditch into their biannual production of, of, of pollen, and, and that pollen gets out, and a, a bit of a, a seed crop gets infected, and, then that, and that's it. It's over. And, I mean, that's, that's why I'm so opposed to this. And it's, Maybe that's a good segue, because let's talk a little bit about why you decided to be a gardener in the first place. I mean, this is not a product that you built, like, because you said one day, I'm going to get rich, so I'm going to go out and find a product. And then you did market analysis and went, gardening's a growth market, and what can I market? What's a ne- you actually are a gardener, and you built a product for yourself. And then turned around and said, "Hey, let's 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 market this." So, what got you into gardening in the first place? Um, you know, I kind of got the the uh, prepper, although it wasn't really called prepper back then. But you know, the tour, before Y two K and and just you know being self sufficient and prepared. And I'm the fourth generation. My great grandfather, my grandfather, and my father all grew up on their our family farm, and. I was kind of the first one that didn't grow up on the farm. I visited the farm. You know, I worked at summer and I went in harvest. But I wasn't, you know, growing up on the farm and, you know, went, moved to California and, and, uh, got a technology job and that sort of path, you know. But, um, I've had to, you know, I got, well, to back up a, a little bit too then, I, I got that pepper bug, you know, kind of Y2K and end of the 90s and, and started to think of things that I could do to be more self-sufficient. And I mean, a lot of people these days that, you know, they, they, they say that the biggest problem that we're, fa- we're going to face now in, you know, 2011, 2012 is going to be food and it's going to be food availability and it's going to be a food affordability and, and I think, you know, I, I caught that early on, and I think that's the simplest thing that you can fix for yourself is just to empower yourself with knowing how to provide your own food because it's so easy 
Um, you know, it's, it's the simplest thing you can do is to teach yourself how to do that. And it's so rewarding. I mean, there's nothing like when you produce your own food, that feeling you get. I know you probably have had that so many times, Jack, and the listeners. You know, once you produce your first cucumber and you eat it and you made it, and it's unbelievable. It, so, it is, and it, it, it wakes people up, too. I remember my sister-in-law the first time, you know, I handed her a, it was like one of those little sweet, like, peppers you generally pickle, but you can eat them fresh, you know. They kind of look like a, a, like a multicolored hot pepper, but they're a sweet pepper. And I just yanked one off a plant, and she was standing right there, and I handed it to her, she said, go ahead and eat it. And so that was foreign to her, first of all, to eat something off a plant. You know, I don't understand what to do. You put it in your mouth, chew it up. You know? And she's like, well, what about, it? it's not dirty, I don't do any kind of pesticides, it's completely clean, just eat it. But once she bit into it, she couldn't believe the way it tastes. Like two weeks later, she's like, I can't believe that pepper. I'm like, you know, all it takes is a seed, dirt, and water, and you can make your own. Um, <laughs> it, 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 but it is empowering. It does, people grow a, a little window box of basil and rosemary and oregano and things like that and, and, and put that in their, their food. And, and the entire profile, I mean, if it's just done uh, four episodes on herbal actions and I, myself, as, as much research as I've done, I had no idea how many healing properties were in culinary herbs, basil, garlic, uh, you know, ginger, just things that we use every day. Yeah, that's been a great series. I've really enjoyed that information. That's awesome. And that's the thing, too, is that, you know, once you grow some of your own food, it tastes completely different from the stuff that you're going to get from a uh, uh, commercial, you know, grocery store or some commercial source. And you start craving that different flavor, and you change your diet. I mean, you you begin to eat things that you produce yourself, and it becomes a self, you know, perpetuating little machine. The more you eat, the more you want, the more you produce, and and uh, and it's a, it's a change that not only makes you know in what you do, but how you do, and and how you are. It changes you. I completely agree. I I. I, I... I mean, that's that's the whole point. That's why some people ask me is, you know, survivalist and a prepper, why do you talk so much about gardening? And it's because the I, you, we can talk about guns all we want, but I've been in a you know, very small number of fights in my whole life, including the schoolyard. Um, and I was a soldier, right? I was sent off to fight. I've still been in very few fights, but I've had to feed myself since I got old enough to not be on a bottle as, as, a, as an infant anymore. I've had to feed myself every single day, a few times a day, and I anticipate having to do that all the way up until they put me in a box or incinerate me. So we've got to feed ourselves. And I, I, I mean, part of my motivation, I'm sure we probably share this in common, wasn't just the, the, the shortages of food, but the crap that they sell us today that they call food. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's the, 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 the single most thing that you can empower yourself. You can, like you say, you know, if times get tougher, even if they don't, well, even if they don't, you've just changed your diet to something that's not junk, that's actually got nutrition. As you've shown in the herbal series that you did, you know, these foods actually have medicinal value that, that, that affect us that we don't even realize. And you're taking away the control from those corporate producers and, and the pharmaceutical companies that would sell you things when you get sick by maintaining your health the whole time, and it's the simplest thing you can do. I mean, it's, I, I can't say that enough times. It is so simple to make that change in your life. And once you do, you'll never go back. It's, I, I've never run into anybody that started growing their own food and said, oh, I gave that up. That was boring. That didn't work for me. I did, you know, never. No. It's, 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 a, it's a catch. It, it catches you. 
Yeah, it absolutely is. I, like I said, I call it a gateway drug. Uh, it is, absolutely. One of the things that I saw uh, that I was excited when we talked before we got started with the show today uh, was that, you know, I've got people that, that email me almost every day. I'm looking for land. I'm looking to move out of, you know, the, my tenth of an acre in the city. I want to go out and I want to live off the land to at least a degree, and I want some freedom, and I want to find a bigger place. I mean, that's no matter whether they're guys in California or, or Maine, everybody, you know, in between, everybody in between wants a little bit more space, and they're wanting, and it's a significant investment. Well, you told me that you guys just made a second move, and on your first move, you felt like you made a lot of mistakes. And I even said, "Don't tell me about them yet." But I want to share some of that with the audience if we can, because there's no better way to avoid pain than to see somebody else do it and then go, "I'm not going to do that." So could we talk maybe about, you know, what precipitated you first to try to get a bigger place and maybe some of the things you would have done differently and, and kind of where you're at now and, and some of the exciting things you've got going on with your new place? Sure, absolutely. You know, um, first of all, we used to live in the city, and we had our little tenth of an acre, and I did do some gardening there. And if you have a tenth of an acre and you live in the city, the Dervais family has shown everybody how much food you can produce on your little tiny city lot. So there's no reason to, to rush out. <laughs> you can do a lot on your city lot right now. So it's possible. We, uh, my, my wife and I, she wanted to start rescuing some draft horses. So, you know, we had a couple of very successful businesses going, both in, in contracting and 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 we were making money hand over fist, and and we overextended ourselves, and we went out and bought in the most expensive market in the nation, about five acres on this really fancy ranch, and uh, started rescuing draft horses. But you know, around 2006, 2007, 2008, um, our contracting businesses were starting to recede. So um, we we ran into some tough times and we had overextended ourselves with our credit and made made every mistake you can make and we're now fixing that so um we have uh uh positioned ourselves to a short selling our home and that we had before and we have moved out to actually a bigger space that we could have paid cash for in the, in the past <laughs> and it's wonderful and it's in the same area and we should have looked better we should have really shopped better when we were looking for places but now we're here so we've we've we're you know cleaning up our mess and cleaning up our debt and cleaning off the 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 slate and i get to now start over i'm starting from ground zero with my with my garden again so this year you know we're putting in actually almost a a market garden sized garden um, I'm really starting from scratch because when at our old house we'd inherited and uh, about a I think it had 36 or 40 tree orchard that had been neglected for a long time. And the garden itself that was there had been neglected for about 20 years, but it was where it was. And so I wasn't in charge of how that works. And now as I'm learning more about permaculture and I'm learning about how to put position your systems, what to do, all these sorts of things, I'm getting to start now where I go out and, and like Jack's mentioned so many times on the podcast, uh, I, I, I walk the, the property constantly and I'm thinking of where this is going to go. I even go out at night, in the middle of the night, on like we've had some, you know, the full moon. I was out there just walking around looking, saying, okay, you know, this place is getting certain wind at night, you know, so I'd, I'd, you know, because the winds kick up where we are and so this place is sheltered, so I'd put this in, you know, and, and really assessing, it's, it's unbelievably 
amazing and cool that I'm getting the opportunity now to start from the scratch. So let, let me hold you a just a second there because I want to make sure people pick that one up because that's something I've never said. And I think it's such a huge thing is to get out and walk your property at night because your prevailing winds and your cold spots and your warm spots and everything like that is going to be different at night. And that's going to be times when some of your plantings are going to need the most protection. So that's awesome. The other thing is, man, I, I, I you know, personally I can relate to you because I'm doing the exact same thing this year. We're moving and I have got this beautiful soil, and it's only got a few beds, but all my beds, I've got soil that I can walk out and shove my hand in up to my elbow, and it's <laughs> black, and it's gorgeous, and I created it, you know. It took me five years to make it, and now I'm moving to this little chunk of sandy, rocky soil up in the high uh, Washita Mountains, up at about 1,200 feet elevation in a different climate, but even though you have to start from scratch, like you said, you get to make the decisions for yourself about how things are oriented. And even though it's intimidating, it's exciting as well, isn't it? It's, it's awesome. I mean, it, it, we, we, where we've moved now, I mean, my, the, the place where I'm going to be putting in gardens, the soil is so comp, it's, it's disintegrating granite. I mean, it's just so, com- my driveway is looser than where I'm going to be putting in a lot of these bigger areas of, of, I've, you know, I put in some raised beds, a lot of raised beds. So I could get stuff going over the winter for my winter garden, but where the big, big growth areas are going to be, um, it's tough. I mean, I'm putting down, I'm literally like a foot and a half of mulch right now, and and making sure that every time it is a little precipitation here, it gets down in there and cutting in some swales and and just doing the things that I can to start getting this condition. So it's already, I can see a dramatic change only in four months. It's the you pull back this this. Uh, this mulch and and the soil is actually starting to look like soil and not just compacted sand or concrete. You know, it's amazing. I'd recommend I'd recommend dealing with that, um, and this is for the audience as well with compacted soil. Uh, go to a website. It's uh, Peaceful Valley Farms is the website, and they have a great catalog. And they have a huge selection of cover crops. And a, a good cover crop mix for that area with things in it like Dachyon uh, radish with those long tap roots and other uh, cover crop plants that get down deep that will break that soil layer for you and add to it, depending on the time of year, uh, either uh, cow peas for the summer or like Australian, uh, Australian winter pea for the winter to get some nitrogen down into those soil levels. And that with your mulch will do a lot of the work for you so you don't have to go break it and you know, your dachyon, you just basically let it rot off in the ground, and all of a sudden you've got all these pathways, because those roots will grow a foot deep in some of the hardest soil you can find. Um, so that'd be something to check out there. Yeah, actually, we I, I've used the daikon out here, and I'm, I'm actually leaving that to go to seed now, because I'm gonna, actually going to get a, a big a big crop of seed. Awesome. And um, we used some vetch, and I threw out uh, buckwheat, and so... Those things were yeah. already really working um, to, to break stuff up. It, it really works. It's unbelievable. It's well. It's almost like nature knows what it's doing. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. <laughs> it's almost like nature's smarter than we are. And if you anybody that doubts that, all you have to do is look at a place where, like, you know, we bulldoze something and then we leave it alone, and, and you see all this rampant weed growth the first year, and then the next year you start to see trees come up, and they come back in five years and it's a little forest again. And, and it's it's almost like if we stop messing with stuff. It'll fix itself, and then if we get involved and see ourselves as medics for the land, we can actually help it accelerate, and we can make the result what we want. So basically, we start working in tune with nature instead of against it, which, gee, that's the whole concept, I guess, Bill Mollison uh, 
you know, brought to us with permaculture. And uh, I'm glad to see you get involved with that. What kind of stuff are you growing, man? Oh, gosh. Um, over the winter garden, we have an awful lot of kohlrabi, broccoli, cabbage, um, an awful lot of daikon because, like, <laughs> it's not just that we enjoy eating it, but uh, also because it's got this great uh, restorative quality. But um, uh, what else? Uh, oh, a lot of beets. Um a lot of greens. Obviously, you know, in the winter I've got boxes and boxes of different kinds of greens, a lot of rocket and a lot of mescaline and, and some, some head lettuce, um, a lot of uh, regular radishes, a lot of raised beds, <laughs> um, that sort of stuff. Very cool. You know, winter stuff. But, I mean, I'm, I'm really branching out for the spring. I mean, I'm doing, I'm uh, planning, I've already, I've got all my trays going right now even, we're in Southern California, so I, I've already started for weeks now. But we're putting in all kinds of experimental stuff, like some amaranth and quinoa, and and a lot of it, um, a lot of uh, the the berries that I'm going to try this year, like the Aunt Molly's ground cherries and the and uh, sunberries and those sorts of things. Well, let me give you a clue on the on the on the on the ground cherries. Um, they say grow them like tomatoes and expect them to be like this, you know, nice kind of trainable vine, they lie. Uh, a ground cherry is a massive, one grows into a massive, like, bush. And it's not a problem, just, you got to give it more space than you think. And if, I don't know if you uh, are big on tomatillos, but I grew tomatillos for the first time this year because I've had so much time, uh, problems with uh, fungus issues with my tomatoes. And tomatillos could care less, apparently, about uh, blight uh, that, that affects tomatoes. And those things are like... I, I swear, I had to get my machete out twice and cut, <laughs> I swear to God, my machete and cut the pathway between the beds because the tomatillos spilled out from one bed to the next. And I had a, had a four by eight foot bed. I had one on each end and I tried to grow some things in the middle and they ate the whole trellis six by eight and they were eating the bed. So I had to keep cutting them back. And if I would have let them go, I think they would have eaten two beds on each side of themselves. Um, and, what a and, wonderful problem! Yeah, it's, uh, that's because of you know rich fertile soil and by the way, good good started seed. Um, uh, in fact, I found a variety of tomatillo at a market garden that the guy said you could just eat them because usually they're kind of sour. And I said, right? He goes, yeah, just try one. So I popped one of them. They're you know kind of small, a green version, but you know a little smaller than what you really find in the store. And they were really sweet. I mean, you could eat them out of hand. And uh, so I bought some, and I just took a little bit of seed from one of them, and I started them with your cubes. And that was the results I got. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, well, when we moved here, um, one of my neighbors had a actually pretty big um, uh, tomato. All he grew were tomatoes and watermelons. Um, but he's been doing it for a few years. So obviously I went over there, and I'm like, hey, you know, I'm Clayton. I'm, what are you doing over here? And so I collected an awful lot of seeds because he's been growing that literally a quarter mile from here for a number of years and i've got the most unbelievable he 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 had a whole bunch of mortgage lifter obviously he those were great growing here and um another variety that had a lot of yellow in it i don't know what it is but they were doing just like you said i mean they were taking over they were growing up uh pepper trees which normally things don't even grow near a pepper tree because they 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 ruin the soil down below and these things were just taking off growing sideways taking growing up pepper trees unbelievable 
So I've got a bunch of those seeds to work with that have been localized here. So that'll be great for the tomato crops. You know, I think that's. I want to try some tomatillo. That's a great point to bring up about the the value of saving seed year after year in your uh, local area. And that's another great reason to use something like the soil cube and learn to start and propagate your own seedlings. To me, it's not just about saving money because it does save you money. Um, but I mean, I've got, you know, I've got so many seeds now that are more highly adapted to the dry, harsh summers that Texas has because we've saved the seeds and grown them. And what I found, you probably found this with your, your previous place, the more you do to improve the soil, all of a sudden stuff starts growing. On its own. I mean, you know, like we had eggplant come up by itself this year, and I'm like, I only planted one eggplant. I don't even understand how that happened. But I got eggplants this year from a volunteer. I had uh, <laughs> red Malabar spinach volunteering itself to the point where I had to hack it back. Uh, I've got that red amaranth everywhere. I've got it growing in flower pots behind my shed. I mean, that that stuff's just, just gone ape. And, again, like you said, nice problem to have, right? Yeah, absolutely. I love volunteers. Um I actually, I, I have a, a, a pack of uh, some red, red amaranth, and then I have a couple, about a pound of, of uh, the white amaranth. So I'm, I'm placing those about oh, three acres apart, but I'm going to be growing both of those, and I love that. That's just such a producer, and it's a great protein. It's, it's an awesome protein, cool and you can mitigate a lot of the cross-pollination just with some um, succession. Plant one, and then three weeks later, plant the other. Uh, of course, checking their, their time to harvest, and... Uh, especially then your first heads off the first one, you're going to have absolutely no issues there. And uh, kind of your second, because you get your smaller little side heads and you use that for your, your seed saving, you know, off your second plant. And I, I've never had, you know, any weird things happen with my amaranth. One year I thought it did, but it was because I wasn't familiar with the red amaranth yet. And what I've learned about it is when you, it's like a cool weather plant, not, not cold, but cool. And when it gets really bright and sunny, it starts to turn green. Because it doesn't need the red uh, to act as that additional solar collection from the darker color, and I was like, oh, "Well, what have I done?" And, and then, like, as soon as like the, we went into the cool part of the year, the, the fresh shoots that were coming out were were back to that deep garnet because it's the Hopi red dyes and stuff I grow, and it's just a gorgeous red. And yeah. uh, man, I grow that for grain. I grow that for for salads. I grow that. You take it when it's little, like six inches tall. You cut those, throw them in a salad. Uh, you let it grow a foot, you cut it off at a foot, and you braise it in Chinese stir-fry. And, you know, you let it grow big and tall, and you get grain. And it's it's one of the most awesome plants I've ever seen in my life. That's See, that when I was uh, advising people, I, I don't think you should grow corn. You know what? Grow some amaranth. And, and, and you know, they already hijacked the corn, but they, they haven't hijacked the amaranth right now. And you're going to get you're going to get something that's going to be quality that, that produces massive amount of... And they probably won't because there's not a big market for GMO amaranth. No, um, and, it, and they're not in, in using it to make the processed foods either. So, and you don't, well, even if you're growing it for like cattle or whatever, it's such an adaptable plant anyway. It doesn't have special needs where you have to heavily fertilize it or treat you know the ground with with some kind of herbicide. So there's not really much of an advantage uh, if they ever do it. They're doing it simply for mouse. I mean, that would be the only reason because the stuff, like I said, it grows everywhere. You you, you can't. <laughs> And there's, you know, there's like a hundred varieties of it in it. So, you know, you're right. And that's another thing. Like, if you grow stuff like amaranth or, or quinoa or ground cherry or, um, or tomato, you know, some of the, the rarer tomatillos, the, the purples or whatever, 
it makes sense to me to focus for your, your kitchen garden anyway on growing stuff like that because it's either very expensive or you can't find it anyway. Yeah, I like that when you had mentioned um, a few shows back when you were talking about a couple of um, uh, ideas for cash crops, the uh, growing vanilla beans for a local uh, crop that can be produced or doing uh, like reishi mushrooms or something like that. That was a great idea. I mean, I, I, I think that people should be looking to things that are expensive, that are hard to find, and, and grow those things because that's where you're maximizing your, your value. You also take the pressure off of export-based economies because they are forced to commoditize their expensive product down to where it's almost a worthless commodity to service people like us that import it, that sit in our nice homes that they could never dream of owning. Uh, vanilla is a perfect example. We see it as a tropical thing that cannot be grown anywhere else, but I probably would have to heat a greenhouse to pull it off where I'm at, but... You know, with the right setup, you could probably do that. And it takes like two or three years because they're an orchid to get them into production. But once they're into production, the, the, the amount that you could produce from even a small uh, south-facing uh, glass house is unbelievable. And they grow kind of like a, um, like a vining. They're a vining orchid. And you have to hand pollinate them, but I mean, doing one takes like three seconds because the flower's got two sides, and basically you take the one side and, 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 and touch it to the other side, and, and it's done. And I think we could be doing that. Uh, and that's Bill Mollison's idea, anyway, uh, just so I don't steal credit for it. That came from a lecture he did with Barking Frog in, uh, in Florida. And another thing he had suggested looking at was growing ginger, because um, it's a relatively uh, expensive crop pound for pound if you look at it that way. Uh, coffee, tea, there's a lot of these things that we could, you know, not grow to commercial factory levels, but for the small market grower that wants to sell it to the local community, you know, imagine selling local tea. What's your competition? Or isn't any? And I found varieties that'll grow into grown set, grow into a region seven. There's a variety, um, that they grow near the Black Sea that the Russians grow. And it's a zone seven hardy perennial. And it's tea. You've never yeah. even heard of UST. Right. Well, you know, there's there's um, there's actually some uh, success um, that you can uh, see up in uh, Oregon, where there's uh, there's a co- there's a company that's growing uh, Oregon tea. Awesome. And it, it sells for about three times what you'd normally pay for tea <laughs> because it's local and, and people are paying for it. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's a real success. And you know, I along just to you know, kind of for the listeners too. You know, um, I, in my previous garden at the house that we had before this, um, I did some experimenting with um, using compost for heat. And um, this is something that's super simple. Uh, the, the guy that invented this was this guy named John Payne. Um, he did it, I mean, maybe he, somebody else. I mean, they've been doing it for, you know, hotbeds for a long time. But he kind of harnessed this in a unique way where he was making very large compost heaps and using it to heat water. Um, produce biogas and heat uh, greenhouses, and he did that with um, you know running air vent through the, the compost heap, um, running pipes for water through the compost heap, and uh, and then he created some sort of a container in the middle that that created biogas. I didn't try that, but I'll tell you, um, I ran an awful lot of irrigation line through the compost pile, which was located slightly downhill from a lot of my um, garden beds. And over the winter, I ran that, I, uh, you know, ran inside the compost pile about 150 feet of the irrigation line. 
and then ran that up into the beds and ran it through the beds. Like I'd make a big circle around the bed and then go to the next bed and a big circle, you know, about halfway through the, the soil. Filled that whole thing with water. And over the winter, I mean, some, on some really cold mornings, my beds would be slightly steaming because the soil was so warm. And you just basically, I would just put a, a, a bit of plastic over that. And um, you have a little instant greenhouse over each one of those beds. And it circulates on its own back down as it cools off in the beds and it would it, it'll go through that loop and go back down through the compost and you could do the same thing with your greenhouses too basically for free and it's unbelievable technology it's um i actually on the on the soil cube dude i think you website, need to i think i think you need to write an ebook on how to build that system and i think well, you, you need know, to charge about 20 bucks for it because i'd buy it. <laughs> it i i i didn't believe that it would work, and so I gave it a try, and it absolutely works. And it's it's pretty much free, you know. When you're going to build a big compost pile, you're going to you're going to get an awful lot of free energy off of it. That that's awesome, and you can get so much of the stuff you're going to compost for free as well. I mean, people that tell me they don't produce enough waste to compost, I'm like, go to your grocery store and talk to the grocer and say, can I take what you're throwing away? And you'll be amazed at how much we throw away in America. And, you know, basically they worry about people eating it. But I found that, especially smaller, like uh, family-owned stores, if you tell them what you're doing with it, you're you're using it for composting, they have no issues with it, and they'll give it to you. And, you know, any kind of lawn care company to get grass clippings from and stuff like that, you can get so much of that for no cost. Another thing that I just discovered, and I don't really know enough about it yet to uh, to, to speak from experience, it's more from research, is the concept of masonry heaters uh, and combined with a rocket stove. And I saw this video on YouTube that this guy that runs permies.com uh, posted, and basically they build a rocket stove in the ground, and then they put like a, a drum uh, where the vent of the rocket stove comes off and then circulates back to the drum, and then that, that creates kind of a, a, a very intense amount of heat. And then that goes back down into the exhaust goes into a pipe, and the pipe runs through some sort of a thermal mass holder, like in a house you would do a, a cob bench, and then it vents out of the house. And that rocket stove with that efficient burn burns so hot the only thing that comes out is steam and CO2. It's it's completely emission free, and you can basically heat up a house with two five gallon buckets of wood a day, because once it's done burning, all that thermal mass just sits there and radiates heat. Well, they built a little one, and the thermal mass was a raised bed inside a greenhouse. Yeah, so you, yeah. you burn one five-gallon bucket of scrap wood in your rocket stove, and you do that right before nightfall on any night where it's going to be cold enough to need the heat, and you're good until morning because that thermal mass is just going to sit there and just radiate that heat. Uh, so there's a lot of ways. You know, maybe I could grow orchids, uh, uh, vanilla orchids in, in Arkansas. And I mean that would be a, a cash crop. It really would. And and your real big expense would have been uh, producing the heat and using that the rocket stove technology. I, I think the Permies is a Permies dot com is a great site too. Uh, it's Paul Paul Wheaton, I believe. Yeah, Paul Wheaton. Uh, He's awesome. Yeah, and uh, um, a rocket stove or using compost for heat, like uh, John Payne did, or those sort of things. You you've eliminated pretty much all of your expense of producing those crops in 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 you know inclement areas. And it's all, I guess it's all specific to your situation. If you have a lot of access to things to make compost with, then that method makes more sense. If you live in a woodland environment like I do where there's, I've got five acres and I've got standing deadwood everywhere and trees that need to be trimmed and trees I can cospice, I can get 
you know, five cords of wood a year probably off my property. I'll never take that much because I don't need it, but I could get that without actually damaging what's there. Um, and if you have access to that, then something like a rocket stove makes more sense because you can burn anything there. You can go find fencing contractors and then, uh, burn, you know, cedar fencing. You would never put in a fireplace in a rocket stove because the, the burn is so efficient. Um, I mean, that, there's so many technologies and some are advanced and some are primitive. And I, it seems to me like things like your soil cube and using the heat from a compost pile. Uh, are some of the, the older technologies are the ones that we've lost touch with, and they do the most for, for the least amount of input. Yeah, you know, I, I also on my website, I, I, I found this a long time ago, and uh, it's, a, it's a book that was published in 1882. It's, uh, I, it's for free download. People can just go and it, the copyright long ago expired. But it was written by a guy that's called um, Success in Market Gardening. And the book is so filled with all of these great tips and techniques that they used in the 1800s before they actually had chemical fertilizers and before they had any kind of, um, you know, uh, any, any inputs of any kind. You know, the, 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 the chemical fertilizers were invented much later. And the book has so much amazing information, and it's specific. It'll say, how do you have success growing each individual plant? And and you can learn so much. The guy was probably he's a farmer in the 1880s. Uh, he uh, he was probably not even educated properly. The guy writes like Thomas Jefferson. It's difficult to read because the English is so high. It's it's unbelievable the amount of information you can get from resources like that. Just looking back to the past and seeing what was done, and um, and rediscovering it. You know, and I mean, it stands. It's pretty logical to understand that these people would know how to do a lot without a lot of inputs, to get a lot of output with very little input, because they didn't have the inputs. They, they didn't have a store that they could run down to in a car and, pit, and, and rent a truck so they could haul, you know, a couple tons of nitrate-based fertilizer that came out of a natural gas well. They, they, they didn't have that. So the only thing they had was, you know, organic to that. Nobody would have, would have said, hey, is this organic in 1880? And they would have looked at you like you're a retard. They, they wouldn't know what that word meant because everything was organic. And everything was locally produced too. But this particular guy that wrote the book, he was a market gardener in New Jersey when it actually used to be the Garden State, and they were producing all the food for New York. They were the food supply. There wasn't ships coming from uh, Guatemala with uh, papaya or whatever. <laughs> they were the food supply. So they figured out a way to make it happen and make it happen consistently. So I love all that old technology. It's it's unbelievable, and there's so many neat hints and tricks and techniques. Well, hey, Clayton, I'm gonna I'm gonna want to have you back on again at some point. I think we got a lot of stuff we could talk about with gardening, and I'm gonna want to as you uh, you build out this market garden this year. Want to have you back on and talk about your progress and some things you're learning uh, as we wrap up. Though I want to make sure people can find your product. So can you tell them about your website where they can find it and uh, let the folks that are part of the member support brigade know about the offer that you have for them. Well, yeah, you know it's been on the the MSB for what like uh, over a year. Right? Over a year, yep. Yeah, and, and people are really, I mean, I get so much feedback from all the member support brigade uh, members about using it and how it's working for them and stuff. So that's, that's awesome. And I, I'm really happy that, that that's a great place for people to get it. Um, if you're not a member, obviously you should be, but, um, you can go to, uh, this, uh, my website, which is just soilcube.com and you can purchase them there. And, uh, and like I said, I have actually a lot of information that's free downloads. Um, somebody who we don't mention very often, 
um, a, that should be mentioned with Bill Mollison is uh, Masanobu Fukuoka, who um, is just, I, I have actually a picture on my desktop on my computer of them together, and uh, he was sort of the, the Asian permaculture grandfather, and he has a lot of information. I have some stuff to download from him, and and those old books that I find that just have unbelievably invaluable technology on how to grow food. So you can get some of that stuff. And, of course, you can purchase the Soil Cube tool. <laughs> Which is how much? It is uh, $24.95 is the, the retail, plus shipping. And members get it for 5 bucks off. Members get it, yeah, 20% off for the Member Support Brigade. Awesome. Which everybody should be a member. You know, Jack, I, I looked back before we talked today because I wanted to see when I first listened to the, the Survival Podcast, and it was episode 184. I had been just tooling around and, and found it, I think, on iTunes, and then, um, which was, uh, I think, the Winter Garden, and then, and then it was the third part. So then I went back and got 181 and 182, which were the first two parts, and that's how long I've been listening to it. So. Wow. Wow. You've been doing a great job. I, I, we spent a lot of time because I would take you to work in my car while you were driving to work doing the podcast. <laughs> I, I've always been amazed that people do that because, um, you know, you have a lot of choices you can listen to when you're in your car because you have a radio and you can listen to all these professionals out there. And uh, it's always humbling to hear that. For, for some time. Thanks for letting me know. Um, so, folks, I do want you to make sure you check out Clayton's website and uh, – I'm not going to butcher the Japanese gentleman's name, but yeah, he's uh, pretty awesome. I believe he wrote The One Straw Revolution is his book, and he's a permaculturist that figured out how to do it and grow grain. Um, so it's a different approach than a lot of folks take, and I think he's huge. How do you say his name again there, uh, Clayton? It, it, it's Masanobu Fukuoka. Yeah. Fukuoka, okay. Fukuoka, yeah, I think he's awesome. Um, another guy I'd recommend people check out is Sepp Houtzer. I mean, the stuff that guy does. He grows lemons in the freaking house. I, I yeah. mean, it's it's like you can't do that. He's like, well, there they are. They've been there for ten years, and of course, he has to do it through a translator because he's he's a he's Austrian. But uh, I mean, all of the stuff that we see, it, it can be done. And uh, I think that that, that uh, Clayton's product is a great uh, asset. I think it belongs if you're gardening and you're starting seeds, you need one of them. I'll put it to you that way. So, uh, again, Clayton, thanks for joining us today, and thanks for all your great insights, uh, not just a great product. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the show. What a, I mean, what a pleasure. Well, cool. And, folks, with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up today. Today has been Jack Spirigo along with Clayton Jacobs, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Show you.